I'm bringing the word today, so if you want to get your Bible ready, uh, if you want to get yourself to Joshua 3, um, I'll take you through this. If we can get my first slide up, guys, that's all right. Um, firstly, brace yourselves. I have uh, over-prepared. I've got too much stuff to bring in the time that I have, and therefore it's going to come at you like a train, um, and uh, hopefully it'll, uh, it'll work. But there's an awful, there's so much I got out of this. When uh, we, we sort of look at the scriptures we're going to bring, and Simon and I talk about what section of the Bible we're going uh, to do, I was given Joshua uh, 1 to 8, and I thought, well, that's nothing. It's just a tiny little piece. You know, it won't, I won't even fill 10 minutes. Uh, the reverse is true. Uh, this is going to be um, quite something to get through. So let's see how I do. Um, First of all, I just want to recap, if you're a visitor where we are, we're in the book of Joshua. We're doing a series called Living Life Without the Fear. And this is all about how uh, Joshua is an example of leadership to us and how the uh, nation of Israel was taken through this time and how it taught them about overcoming fear. Um, and uh, we've gone through sort of looking at Joshua the man, uh, the fact that he was uh, an obedient, faith-fueled man, um, the fact that he was uh, word and law saturated, he studied the word, he understood the law, um, he understood what was given to Moses, um, and he was someone who God spoke to. He taught him, he was instructed, and then he acted upon God's instruction. So that's the sort of man Joshua was. And then in chapter 2, we hear a story about how spies were sent, special men were selected for a mission to go in and look at the land that they were going to take and they came back and reported they're scared stiff of us coming and there was a lady there a woman uh, uh, called Rahab um, who was a key character in the story a prostitute someone who naturally would not be selected to be a key part of God's mission and yet God chose her and worked through her um, when the spies went in and she's a big part of the story to come so that's kind of where we are um, but now we're going to return to the banks of the Jordan. We're going to go back to where the Israelite people are gathered, about two million of them, waiting um, at the edge of the Jordan um, to cross. And I'll take you through that, uh, that movement to there and what that means. Um, and I'm going to try and grab three key themes out of this. Um, I'm going to try and look at the size of the task. So how big was this thing they're about to do? Prepare, preparation for the task. How did they need to prepare? And then I'm going to look at the leading of the task. So let me just read through uh, Joshua 3, 1 to 8 for you, just so we can get ourselves focused in on that. So I should have done this before I got up here, shouldn't I? Joshua 3. Early in the morning. There's our first trouble. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went through the camp, giving the orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying, carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep your distance of about a thousand yards between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, we heard this this morning, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass it on ahead of the people. So they, look at, they, look, they, so they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests to carry the Ark of the Covenant and when you reach the edge of the, river, of the waters of the Jordan, go and stand in the river. 
So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at that verse and we're going we're to try and understand what's in it. But there's actually huge symbolism in this moment of crossing over. I'm jumping ahead and I'm stealing Aaron's thunder. Aaron's going to preach next week a little bit, but, but we know they're going to cross. You know, let's, let's be, if you don't know that, then I'm blowing the story for you. They're going to cross the Jordan. The Jordan's going to dry up. And there's a huge significance in that moment of going across. The first thing is it's kind of immediate. It's not like, you know, okay, we'll camp here uh, and then we'll go and knock a forest down and we'll build some bridges and we'll get some barges made. And about six months' time, we're going we're gonna to go across. When the crossing comes, it's going to be something that's going to happen very, very quickly. Because they're not going to go over a bridge either. They're going to go straight across. It would facilitate um, military occupation. An entire army can move when a river's dried up. Not single file, one at a time. Two million, hundreds of thousands of troops amongst this people are going to go across the Jordan. They're not going to do it one at a time and eventually gather. That would take weeks to get them all over and get them regathered. It's going to reveal God's power. I'll come to this later. But as it did with Moses, it's going to reveal God's power to a people. They're going to see God do a miracle. It will confirm Joshua's position in God. And people are going to look at Joshua and say, wow, as he was with Moses, so he is with him. And it's going to devastate the enemy. They'll never be expecting two million people to come over in one big movement. They knew they were coming, but even they wouldn't have figured out how they were going to get across. So let's start by looking at the size of the task. How big is this task? And let's just make sure we know where we are right now. Let's get ourselves um, into the picture. So um, the people are about to move. Um, God's, been, God's spoken to Joshua and said, Joshua, move. Go to the, so they're in one place. They're going to move to the banks of the Jordan. And in three days, they're going to cross. And as we said before, Joshua doesn't just say, Hallelujah! And run and say, everyone, two million of you, come on, God's ahead of us. And he just runs at the Jordan and does the seaside dance. You all, I'm sure, know the seaside dance. Would you like me to demonstrate the seaside dance? <sighs> A man of stature. The seaside dance goes like this. No, 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 that's cold. The male seaside dance is worse. It's like, it has a certain another point. It's kind of, you get into about here. And you know what's coming. <laughs> Men have a special expression. It's this one. <sighs> and that's the moment where, strangely, we defy physics because we can grow about three inches. We kind of do this. <sighs> and eventually we settle in. <sighs> I love the fact these are videoed. It's just such... such <laughs> but, you know, that's not what happened. It's not like a charge. We go and get about halfway and think, oh, I'm freezing and it's not doing anything. It wasn't that. There was this wait, move. And at this point, we don't see that Joshua actually knows what God's going to do. He just knows, go, go to the edge of the Jordan. I'm going to do amazing things when you get there. So he rises early and breaks camp. Our first challenge, people. He rises early and he breaks camp. Teenage boys, he rises early. He rises early. He gets up early in the morning and says, there's a job to be done today, and it's not going to be something I'm going to laze into. He was no sloth. He was no lazy character at Joshua. But they're going to stay on the edge of the river for three days. So they're going to go move to the edge of the Jordan, and that's where they're going to wait. That's what God says in Joshua 1. Go wait. And at that point, no one really knows what's going to happen. So it's just that, okay, you say go. 
We'll go. We believe God's with you. We'll go and we'll wait. So Joshua is this faith-fueled, faith-filled man of God who says, I know you're before me, so I'm going to take on whatever you lay ahead of me. And then they get to the edge of the Jordan. And it's a mile wide. We're told about a mile wide. And it's in flood. Good time to cross. Good time to cross. In flood. Probably got debris coming down it because when it's in flood, it drags in everything from the banks. So you've got this river moving about uh, 10 mile an hour. That's fast for a river. So you can see it flooding, flowing, and you're thinking, oh my word, we're going to cross that. How are we going to do that? We're going to fly over it? We have no idea. And they, they stop for three days. And the first challenge in this story is, well, why would they stop? If this is a military campaign, so you've got to understand, the spies have come back, said they're scared of us. They've heard. They know we're coming. In a military sense, that's when you strike. You get over there and you, you take them at the moment. Because if you think, if you give them too long, if you think of this in a, in a military situation, if you give a, another enemy too long, they're going to kind of build up their forces because they know you're coming. They're going to start to get ready. They're going to kind of think their fear starts to subside. They haven't come yet. They get themselves ready. So the best thing to do is go. As soon as they hear you're coming, go and take. But it's not. They wait. They stand and they, they camp at the side of the Jordan. Why on earth do we do it? Why is that relevant to us? Why is this important? Because after three days of looking at what's ahead of them is one of the reasons. They've got to look at it for three days. I don't know about you, but anything you're scared of, you don't really want to look at it for three minutes. Never mind three days of looking at, oh my word. And after three days, you're thinking it's still flooding. It hasn't slowed. It hasn't got any easier. This is impossible. So the first thing that happens is they realize it's impossible. There's no way that we can get across. We're inadequate. If we're to go now, we don't have the tools to do this. We're inadequate for the task that's laid ahead of us. And the other reason is because they need to get prepared. They need to prepare themselves physically. They're not being fed by God anymore. They're actually needing their own food. They need to get their supplies together. They need to prepare themselves mentally and emotionally for what they're about to go to. They need to get their heads around what's about to happen. And as we've said this morning, they need to prepare themselves spiritually. They're about to do something amazing in God. This is 40 years of lead up to this moment. And you just don't go at it without being prepared in every way. I'll come back to that second point about preparation later. But let's go back to the first one about the fact they're looking at this huge task in front of them thinking, we, we, we can't do this. You've got echoes of the kind of Red Sea crossing, you know, when they, when they leave um, with Moses and he parts the Red Sea. It's, it's a very similar, there's no error in that. It's kind of, again, Joshua being the person that's taken through. It's God working and showing a similar picture. It's got echoes of that. Um, but the Israelites just needed to realize the task is too great for us in the natural. There's no way. We can't carry each other on each other's shoulders. You get in that river at 10 mile an hour. You've got to remember, amongst this people will be 2 million. This is not 2 million you know, 25-year-old guys. This is 2 million children, older people, the frail, the infirm, those who are pregnant. This is a people about to go across. There's no way you're going to put that, much, that amount of people in a flowing river in flood uh, and just expect them to get across okay. 
it's not the first time that God's people have really known about their inadequacy. Um, we look at the uh, Psalm 107 as a good example of this. This is just a history looking back and saying about Let me read some verses to you. They were hungry and thirsty and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Verses 12 to 13, so he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled, and there was no one to help. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. 27 and 28 said they reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits, and they were going out of their minds. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them from their distress. This is reflected back, looking at how in moments of, you know what, I can't cope. I can't do it. Personally, this, this situation's too much for me to handle. Corporately, my, my ch in the church, you know, this is too much for us to take on. The task is not something we can achieve. At those moments, we hear, cry out to God, and he will meet you in your distress. And so they needed to prepare. They needed to get ready. And let's just look at that preparation phase. I think this is really, really significant to us at the moment in this church. And Simon said to me as he came in this morning, I want to pray about consecration. I'm thinking, wow. And as he prayed for us, you know, it's very much at, you know, what I was going to preach on now. Let's talk about the physical preparation first. Joshua 1.11, they have three days to prepare physically. So they have to get ready to cross. They've got to gather their supplies and get ready to cross. You don't just set off, like I said before, without preparing physically for what you're about to do. You're about to move and make a camp over the other side of a river. You need to make sure you're physically ready for that. And in Joshua 3, 4, he starts to prepare them mentally and emotionally. He says to them, you have never been this way before. In other words, don't bring any preconceptions of how I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do it the way you expect. I'm going to take you outside of your comfort zone, and I'm going to do this differently. And he tells them to prepare spiritually. He says in verse 5, as you know, consecrate yourselves. Now, this is, you know, a good hour-long preach in its own right, so I'm going to try and do this briefly. Apologies. What I would encourage you to do, probably should have said this at the beginning, is look, we've got 40 minutes probably to, to share a word like this with you. Only eight verses. There's so much more that, that, that Simon and I can ever bring out in these, these moments together. There's really an encouragement to go and read these, either before, because you kind of know where we are if you're a regular coming to this church, or after you go, go and read them. Look at everything that's in there, because we just can't get it all out in the space of 40 minutes. But let's talk about this preparation, physical preparation. The right resources need to be in place for some significant mission. When there's a significant mission, when there's something God's about to call to happen, the right resources need to be present and in place. And I'll jump straight into the, the uh, analogy with us at the moment. I'm sure you can tell. If you're a visitor here today, I said this to the last time I preached, if you're a visitor here today and you think, nice, I'm visiting, I, I think you might be surprised. There's a lot of people here who came for a little visit. There's probably about 30 odd of them now who came for just, oh, heard, thought of visit, and God says no. I'm about to do something and you need to come and be part of this. There's people who have been for years uh, searching for a, a spiritual home and then come in and say, don't know why. It's not because we're kind of, you know, we've got a funky logo and, you know, whatever. It's nothing to do with any of that. It's, if it is, then we're, we're getting it wrong. It's because hopefully you can sense God's about to do a huge work in this town. And therefore the physical resources need to be together to make that happen. That's feet. That's people. 
That's you. That's us. If you set off without the right resources, if we say we feel God has called us to Watford and that's what we do feel, and in fact we feel God's called us to much more than Watford in the long-term future, but in, in this time we feel that that's where you know, God said, yeah, this is where it's going to begin for you as a church. This is where we're really going to start to do something very, very different. You can't just set off with no resources in place. That's bad leadership. That's us saying, look, you know, we feel God's called us to do it. We've done the, the seaside run. We've just gone, yeah, God said go for Watford. Let's just go and we just run at it and we just do something without thinking about resources how does that thing happen as they get planned who do we need to make these things happen and then we pray into that those resources will be added then we, so we look at physical preparation so we look at mental and emotional preparation we need to know we're totally dependent on God for any task that gets of any significance just can't do it we're praying this morning I was praying with the guys this morning just feeling this prayer of you know what God's Make us realize that in everything that we try to do in your name, there's some point at which we just run out of ourselves if we try and do it in ourselves. We just, there's nothing left. If you think that every Sunday all we're going to do is forget God, we're going to come here and we're going to set this screen up as, a, as a, an auditorium and we're going to do that. And after two or three months, you just, you just run out of yourself. But when God by his spirit says, do it, do it for me, things change. You change your heart attitude, first of all. And secondly, as you set off on tasks that seem to be, we'll never get that done. It's just too big, too much to handle. You run out of yourself. There isn't enough there. This is the world's error. This is the world's error. This is where we get told, you know, great people, you know, because they just keep going and they keep going and they keep going. And then you find out they've just burnt out one day. I hear so many tragic stories, I'm sure you do too, about people who, who work like crazy all their lives, retire, and within a year have passed away. Their systems just shut down. They just do it in their own strength. Eventually it just doesn't work. We run out of ourselves. We need to know as we begin, we have a total dependence on God for the mission. We need to abandon our mental preoccupation, our mental idea of this is how it must be. Uh, we need to understand that God is going to do, he's already done something different. You know, if you're a visitor, you probably don't sense the difference between how we used to do uh, church in this church and how it is now. God's done some stuff, but it's even, I think, you know, we're starting to sense it's just kind of radical by a couple of percent compared to what he's about to do. But, you know, we need to get rid of our ideas of how we must do things and be ready for a new way because we've not gone this way before. We're about to go a way that we've not been before. Very, very exciting. And if we're not careful, and we start to do it in our own strength, very, very scary. Because we'll step out without saying, God went before us, this is what he wants to do. Are the resources in place? Are we spiritually ready? Are we sanctified, consecrated, ready to do the huge work that God's about to ask us to do? If we go at that without those things in place, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get it wrong, and we're going to go our way, not the new way. We're not going to be ready for God. We have a tendency to jump. It's natural. It's natural. It's very, very natural in most businesses. Uh, I won't share my business background with you too much, but a lot of what I do in my job is to uh, help people try and figure out how to solve problems. And the first thing we say is stop trying to solve the problem. The first thing you do, stop trying to solve it. What is it? Get right back to what is the thing you're trying to achieve. 
Go back to the root of what you're actually trying to get to. Don't jump straight to, ah, I've got the answer, got, got the solution, I'm the one that's worked it all out, and we just do this solution, it doesn't work, then we try something else, and we try something else. And eventually you say, stop, slow down, come all the way back. What are you actually trying to achieve? And that has a resonance for me in work, in my spiritual life. I run at something, I start to do something, and then I think, why am I doing this? Why? Why am I doing Why have I laid that thing on for the church? Because it felt right to do lots of meetings about this thing, you know, we should have a meeting like this. No, it's like the men's intercessory group that's begun up, the prayer group. Don't just start doing it. We had some battles early on that people will tell you about. Just don't, start, just don't just start doing stuff. Why? What are you hoping to happen? And then you get that, yeah, we want to see God. We want to, we want to intercede. We get that all sorted out. And we say, right, now we pray and now we go. I wrote this little thing down. We plan and plot, yet to pray we forgot. Yeah, I'm a poet and I just don't know it. We plan and plot, yet to pray we forgot. I'm a spreadsheet guy. I've got a spreadsheet for everything. And I kind of sometimes just do the spreadsheet before actually saying, Lord, do you want us to do this? But I made a spreadsheet. Surely you must meet me at my computer. Um, okay, let's get into uh, spiritual preparation. This is kind of the real key theme for me in preparation in Joshua 3. And a real big theme for us, I think. There's this need. The verse says to consecrate, some say to sanctify yourself. Because tomorrow God's going to do a great work in you. I hope you're on tea and coffee. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, yeah, it's this, be ready spiritually. And uh, I was reading a book by a guy called Colin Peckham. Um, can you get that one up there, guys? It's number 11. There you go. Thank you. Um, about this whole thing of consecration and sanctification. He said, this principle still holds. There must be a time of spiritual preparation before any great event. Jesus spent the night in prayer before he chose the 12 disciples. If he needed to pray, how much more do we? You know, I mean, we can often, as I say, plan and plot and for, pray we forgot. Jesus Christ, who could have just said, Lord, put big thing, pointy fingers above the 12, send them to me, you know, that'll do, prayer ended. No, he spent time in prayer. He sought the Father. He said, what, you know, who are these men? Let me make sure I make the right call. Let me make sure I make the call that is your heart. And, and yet you feel like he had a hotline. He didn't need to do that, yet he did. And I want to talk to you about these two. For me, what came out of sort of preparing for this was two types of, of sanctification we need to be aware of. The first one, is what we call um, like positional sanctification. If you want to put the next slide up, guys, I didn't mark that one. Um, it sounds complex. Sounds one of those flashy things. Positional sanctification. It's got lots of you know um, letters to it, so it must be complex. It's not really. Um, it's actually for me. It says, look, your position in God changes. So we go from being sinful, self-motivated. We accept Christ as our saviour. We're set free. God looks at us, sees his son before he sees our sin. And our position in God changes. We move from a position of worthless, doing our own thing, to worth, worthy through Christ. God intervenes, reveals his son to us and changes our position in him and changes our position in life. It's an external thing. People know it. 
It's something that, that can be seen if you choose to make it seen. You can wear a Christian t-shirt. You can wear a nice bright orange X1 t-shirt. You can do the ultimate sign of, uh, in, in English culture, of really going crazy and stick a fish on your car. Woo! Madness! You know, we really are out there now because we've got a fish in our car. But, you know, those sort of things can be seen externally. You're, oh, you're a Christian, you're born again. You can tell people about it. It's an external. And then there's the practical sanctification. I think this is what Simon felt led to pray about this morning and probably the most testing part of my preparation. This is when we address the internal. When we look to be sanctified from our inner issues, from the things that will hamper us, from the things that in truth rot us from the inside. And we know it. And it's not a you know it, we know it, I know it. There are issues and there are things in our life that are a personal journey that we know we should be dealing with. That's the inner sanctification and that's our job god we can't do anything about being saved in many respects we accept christ as our savior we accept christ as our savior we make that action but god sent him god took him to the cross god laid the sin of the world upon him and took him upward god did that we accept that we're saved hallelujah yeah we accept that we're saved he did that for us our only role in this is to believe it understand it the simpleness of john 3:16, for god so loved the world he gave his only son is that moment of i'm justified i got saved i jesus did it for me for some of you it's a bang where one day you come into the church as I've often shared the comparison between me and my brother my brother comes into the church um and it just happens I keep going to the church because he's going thinking, what happened to you? You know, my brother is not like me. He's a different character completely. He's really nice. No, he's a, <laughs> he's a, t a tough, you know, sort of, you know, bit of a bit of a bruiser was at that time. And I'm thinking, wow, you got saved. I'm coming back. And then one day I just thought, you know what? There wasn't the lightning bolt moment. There wasn't the, ah! there was this, hang on a minute. Truth is lies, and lies is truth. If someone told me Jesus didn't exist, I'd put up an argument. i said, yes, he did. He's the way that you get saved from your sin. That's the way God puts the world right in us as individuals. And if I say that as an argument, I, went, I said to Terry uh, at the time, the guy in the church, I'm in, aren't I? He said, yeah. I said, is there not supposed to be like angels? Something's supposed to happen now. Isn't the room supposed to light up? He said, no, you know, everyone's different. God meets you where you're at. And where I was at is a process of, oh, hang on a minute. My views change. So when we make a call and we say, you know, for those of you who want to receive Jesus, put your hand up and you think, no way is this hand going up. No way, because, you know, I've not had the, ha, ah, that just doesn't happen. It went, ha, ah, for a longer time, but you got there. You get there. You will find that actually inside you've been justified. Hallelujah. More of that, huh? More of that in our midst. Absolutely more of that in the midst. But you begin the process of sanctification. From that point forward, you're, put, you're trying to put your life right. You understand quite early on we do the standard stuff. No more looking at rude stuff. No more watching that kind of stuff on telly. No more of this. No more of that. You kind of deal with those early ones. They're kind of the obvious ones. You kind of often really try to deal with that very early on. But then there's more. You kind of realize, actually, I've actually got some issues with anger here. I've actually got some issues with, with lust. I've got some things I've got to deal with. And I think, you know, you, you can take some time. But at some point, I think God says, look, we're about to do something. So get that stuff out. Get it ministered to. Get it sorted. I need an army. I need an army to do my mission for this town 
And therefore, you're going to have to work through some of this stuff. Stop, keep pushing it off, pushing it off. There's some time when God says, now. And for me, and I hope for a lot of you, it's now. Now's the moment where you have to say, we're about, not, I can't tell you what the Jordan bit's like. I can't tell you what's going to happen. I just know it's going to happen. You know, I'm preparing this word. I'm thinking, oh man, it's going to happen. What's going to happen? I've got no idea. It's just going to happen. It's going to happen. It's already started to happen. So, I put in my notes here, if time permits. Does it permit? Let me try. Let me try. No matter how long you've been in this church, it's a time to repair. We're going to cross. If you've been in this church like Diana and James, is that Graham I see up there? Graham and Helen, wow, okay. So from the church from the beginning, and if you're in the church like someone like Kat and that, who are just kind of coming into the congregation and being with us, who changed hair colour just to confuse us all. Um, but you know, if you, there's no difference in many respects to what the mission's about to be. It's great that you've been here for 20 years, but it's also great you've been here for three weeks. But be excited, the mission's about to begin. God's about to do the work. Your role is just as relevant whether you've been here two minutes, two days, or 20 years. It doesn't put you in a higher status of what God's about to do. It just says, I'm adding you in. I'm putting you together. There's no mistake. Why are we generationally so diverse in this church? wasn't what I was expecting. I thought we'd appeal to sort of a certain segment of society. And yet, as you can see, we have from the very young to the much more mature. Did I choose good wording there? Thank you, Lord, for your divine intervention. I was thinking, am I going to say very old? No, I can't, no. But you know what I mean. We must accept God's about to do amazing things amongst us. Take that home. God's about to do amazing things. He already is doing amazing things amongst us. Don't let me always say it's tomorrow because it isn't. But he's about to do something very unexpected. In us. I know I feel it in my spirit. And, and God's timing isn't like, well, Andy, it didn't happen that week. You know, it's been two weeks now since you said that and it hasn't happened, has it? No, but come on, there's, there's something about what God's going to do in us in, the, in next year probably. There's something going to be significant about saying, and we heard it, we've had it prayed over Simon to be radical, to be completely outside of what should work. And yet for some reason it works, just like going up to a river standing in it with a big golden box and it just stops made no sense to anyone and yet God did it so we're going to have to deal with our issues to be part of that we're going to have to say, face up to the fact that we have selfish desires we have issues of anger, of lust, of self-gratification we are couch, PC, Xbox, Wii, potatoes at times in my notes, I was told on the way here about something about a game, and I thought, oh my word, I even had this in my notes. Let me lay a challenge to you boys, you guys, and maybe some ladies, and I'm a gamer, so you can uh, bring me into this. Are you too busy playing Call of Duty 2 to answer Call of Duty 1? Take that one home. Are you too busy? Doesn't mean you can't play it. I'm not a particular fan of it. I'm saying, are you too busy doing it that when Call of Duty 1 comes, you say, no, I'm on Call of Duty number 2? You didn't turn my sound off. They, said they threatened to do that when I, when I shared that. It's really important about that whole thing about how... <laughs> oh, bless you guys. At least you let me get it out. It's important about that whole thing. Look, you know, I'm tired. I can't read my Bible. <laughs> tired. Can't, can't get up in the morning. <laughs> you know, don't, don't try and kid yourself or kid me. If it gets in the way, get it out of the way. If it doesn't get in the way, I play games. Don't worry about it. But if it's something you say, I just don't have time to read the Bible. You do have time to read the Bible. It's just if it was attached to your thumbs, it might... You know, work. Better get off of that one real quick. Okay. 
But but I mean it. I mean it. I mean it. I mean it. You know what I mean. When Joshua talked to the people about not having passed this way before, he was not telling them about a new territory. He meant they'd be moving in a different method. For 40 years, they'd moved around the wilderness following a fiery cloud. The Ark of the Covenant was in the middle of their ranks, but a new order was required to do what was about to happen. And the Ark would go first and they would follow. That comes from a guy called Danny, but I thought he summed it up really well. You know, that's exactly what's about to happen. But let's, I'm going to look at the significance of the Ark now. You can see why I said I've got a lot to bring in, but hey... We're going okay so far. I want to talk to you about the Ark now, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was not discovered by Steven Spielberg, okay? It's not a Harrison Ford thing. It actually existed in biblical times. It was a real thing. So, it's mentioned 21 times in Joshua 3 and 4. So, it must be significant. You know, there's 21 times. And Joshua spreads the word about following the Ark. He says, follow this Ark. That goes round through the offices. When the ark moves, you get up and you move and you follow it, but you keep a distance from it. I think it's 2,000 cubits, I think it was, but you hear in the verse about, about it in the yards. But you stay away from it. You keep as clear distance. There's a way to follow it. But the important thing was the ark was no longer in the middle. Whenever they carried the ark, it stayed in the middle. Now the ark was going to go out in the front. That's different. And for a very, very uh, sort of structured people who understand tradition, religion, and, and ceremony, what you're moving the to the front. So this is that, whoa, that's not what we expected. Why? Because Joshua wasn't going to lead them over the Jordan. God was going to do it. And the ark signified God with the people. The ark contained the law. So the Jewish people followed the law across the Jordan. The ark was God amongst them. There was no Moses-like stuff. There was none of the kind of Charlton Heston moment when he does that. There you go. The big way part. There is, you know, that didn't happen. And you know, we have that picture. And in fact, if you look, there's so many pictures of Moses parting the Red Sea with the staff. And he kind of does what God tells him to do. He stands there. He does that. And yet, if you actually look for images of Joshua doing the same, there's hardly any major paintings about it. Why? Because it doesn't seem quite... Because it wasn't a man doing it. There's a box in the river held by some priests. And then... The, the river dries up. It's not quite such a captivating image. Why? Because there was, because Joshua didn't go, right, ark, river, stop. Let everyone look at God working in me. He was showing his obedience in doing what God said to do. But God went before them, set the ark in the middle of the river, and the river stops. And we look a little bit closer at the ark. And we look at it. I mean, and this is real revelatory stuff for me. And if, it's, if it isn't to you, then you're ahead of me. But I was looking at how the ark was made. I was reading about some people. And they said, look, first of all, it's made of wood. But it's got gold molded into it. It's got the Ten Commandments in it, the law. Had some other things in it, which I won't explore just at this time. But the Israelites literally followed it. It was the law and they were following it. It had on it a mercy seat. The, the lid was, made, was called the mercy seat. It was a seat of solid gold on which during a ceremony called the Day of Atonement, they would sacrifice and pour blood down it to pay for the sins of Israel. They would actually say, this is how we atone for our sin, through pouring blood on this thing called the mercy seat. So the ark was, you know, God. You can kind of hear about the fact that, you know, you, you, God signifies God in this story, but it's more than that. This is the woe moment. The ark symbolizes Christ. The ark symbolizes the Savior to come. If you get this, we've, we've achieved something today. It's made of wood. It's natural. It's a natural physical form. Shows God's humility as he comes down in flesh. It's molded in with gold, showing his deity. He's God. 
So you've got an object made of wood and gold together, moulded together. It's moulded as one. It's Jesus Christ is that. God and man moulded as one. Christ upheld the law. It was in him. He's the only sinless one. He upholds the law. The law stays with him. He knew the law deeply and he upheld it. His sacrifice is the ultimate sign of mercy. He's the, the mercy seat. The ultimate sign. When his blood gets spilt, we're saved forever. No need to continually continue those rituals. The mercy seat is God's mercy through his son. And the ark led the Israelites just like Christ leads his church. We're Christ first. Christ leads this church. Neither I nor Simon nor anyone in any leadership position actually leads this church in truth. We listen to God. We pray. We seek God. We seek him more for his timing now, actually, than his calling. That means we don't seek his calling. Don't hear me wrong. We, we feel God saying that. But we're actually saying, when, Lord? When, Lord? So I hope you go away and look at the Ark of the Covenant again. And if you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, you're going to go, that's Jesus there. That Ark signifies my Saviour. Fully man, fully God, containing the law, and I follow him. The crossing of the Jordan depicts our salvation in many ways. We follow a cross. We go from one life to another life. It depicts our salvation in the sense of going from this worldly life to a promised land by following Christ. It's, an, it's a wonderful picture to take with us of just exactly what God's done for us. Hallelujah. So let me try and summarise. Let me try and summarise. If you believe, and I'm sure you do, as uh, many of you do, as Simon and I believe in that God is calling us to something really radical, that really is going to impact this church, the church, we believe God called us to do something different. I can't say the word's not right with church, because that sounds like we're just saying every other type of church is wrong, and that's absolutely not. We're saying God just called us to do something very, very different in the context of what church means. The whole idea of coming here is a radically different move. And it's part of that. So if you believe that's part of what's God's doing, and he's going to do something amazing in this town. We've heard for years, I'm sure many of you had, you know, Watford gets mentioned in some strange context on the telly about God's doing a work in that town. He's about to, but I feel that it hasn't actually happened yet. It's something gone to kind of gather us together. As churches, you know, we now connect with other churches far more than we ever did in the past. We kind of sense when you get together with people like Tim Roberts and others and just say, hallelujah, we're going for this town. But it hasn't happened yet. Something's going to happen of significance. If you believe that, if you do believe that, then you need to know the task is too big for us. Even if we gathered the entire churches of Watford together and said, right, we're going to go do it. We're going to do, and do, we're going to do what for God? Okay, God says, okay, go and take the town for me. Go and get the name of Jesus lifted high in the center of the town. If God doesn't go before us, we're just a noisy bunch of people. Collected together, getting on everyone's nerves. Just wandering around town saying, have you heard of Jesus? Have you heard of Jesus? God's going to do something very, very different. And it's by his spirit he's going to do it. We must know that God, we need God's strength. So he doesn't, we don't fear the massive task. Yes, it's a massive task. We may fear it, but just like the river Jordan, the waters, the fear can dissipate. If we know that God has gone before us. So our primary role as your leaders, as your elders, is to say, God, show us what you want us to do, when you want us to do it. And when we say, guys, we need to do this, you know God's with us. That's all we ask. 
Not that it was a brilliant plan with a great spreadsheet and it looked really great presentation, fantastically done, Andy. Wonderful job, you know, great, really convicting. No, you just need to know God is at work. We need to be a people prepared, as I've said, sanctified, living a life that constantly looks to be consecrated, both externally and internally. The Lord will truly do wonders in us if we take that on board. And then we must follow God. He leads the way. God claims the lost. God claims the individuals. God claims this town. We go and do his work for him. When they say, you know, Israelites, I'm giving you the promised land, he already claimed it for them, but they had to go and take it. God is laying before us people that need to get saved, and we need to go and take who he's claimed. We cannot whip anyone into salvation. You cannot say, woo, come on, come on, come on, Jesus is, you know, or try the hell thing, you know. If you don't believe, you're going to hell. God saves through a revelation of his son, but we must be the ones that speak. Blessed are the feet that carry the good news. And I had this when I was just finishing my preparation. Good timing. And it's something I think we should just weigh. Because if we believe it and we feel, yes, that speaks to us, then I think it's time to get very excited. On our move from the camp that was in Bushy and Ordenham, where we used to meet in a hidden building, that's a picture of the Israelites moving from Shittim over to the banks of the Jordan. That's a picture of that. They go and they, we've, got, we've gone to the banks. And now we can see ahead of us Watford. You know what I mean? Understand what I mean? Ahead of us is what is the, not the promised land, so don't take the analogy too far. It's not an analogy. This is a real God story for me. You're now, Watford can see you, and you can see Watford. And I'm going to take you in to what I'm going to do. This isn't a physical movement. This is a movement of us in terms of our mobilization as a people to go and do what God wants to do in Watford. That's when we move across. And we have to accept that the task is too great for us to take the next move. But we have to get ourselves ready physically, mentally, emotionally and spiritually. So when God says go, we're ready to go. The key thing for me is that he's moving us. He moved us physically, he's moved us as a body, he's moving us as a people, and he's moving some of you this morning. He's preparing us to do something, he's preparing us as an army, he's preparing us in every single way, but we have to do some stuff here. We have to make some moves of our own. We have to say, you know what, if I'm supposed to be a soldier, some of this stuff's going to have to get dealt with. I want to be fully fighting fit for whatever God chooses me to call us to. Fighting fit for the mission that God's about to set before us. Be prepared. Be prepared. I've been a, I've been a Christian now for a long time. You know, 1991-ish, I think it was. None of my Christian life is wasted. None of it at all has been wasted. God has been just moulding me and teaching me for many years. For some of you who are new Christians, he'll be moulding and teaching you for several weeks. But for me, this is, this is kind of what I've hoped for in many respects. God, use me. You know what? Don't just, don't just keep teaching me and loving me. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. But, but use me. Otherwise, I'm useless.